So if you haven't turned into your Bibles yet, please do so uh, to Exodus chapter 19. And we have a lot to get through this morning. This is one of those sermons that I have been both excited to preach, but also recognizing how much is here and the weight of this text. Uh, come in this morning uh, just feeling a, a tremendous responsibility, tre- tremendous burden for all of us. Uh, here is the title of my message this morning. Don't play with fire. Don't play with fire. Uh, we have jumped back into our series in the book of Exodus. We picked up in chapter 19 last week, and what we saw is that the Lord, after he had rescued Israel from Egypt and he'd been leading them through the wilderness, brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai, and here God is going to covenant with his people. He's going to enter into covenant. He's going to give them his law to shape the life of his people. This is what it means to be in covenant, to be in relationship with me. This is what it means to be my people. So there's a sense of excitement. There's a sense of that, that God is going to meet with his people. Israel are there. They're going to get his law. So, so we left it last week with, with this sense of anticipation. God said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Israel was like, all the things that the Lord says he's going to do, yes, we believe we're going to follow him. So so we we kind of left it there. But this morning, we are going to see that though Israel had a sense of excitement, though Israel was going to enter in with this posture, at least now, we'll see later in the story, it's different, but at least now with this posture of faith, there was something they needed to recognize about the Lord. Yes, as exciting as it was that, he was going, that they were going to enter into covenant with him, into relationship, that God was going to, he, he was going to make them his treasured possession, they were going to be near the Lord, they needed to be reminded of something. Something needed to be out in front of them always and forever. And it's this, God is holy. Like as exciting as it is that we are in covenant with him, we do not enter into that relationship on our own terms. We do not come to God flippantly. We do do not set the terms of that relationship. Rather, it's something that God does. There are important truths for us this morning that Exodus 19, 9 through 25 points us to. And so here is the main point. Here's what we're going to wrestle through this morning. Is that to be near a holy God, we must be a holy people. God is holy, and we cannot minimize this truth. We cannot, if we're going to be in relationship with God, we have to take account of this fact. To be near a holy God, we must be a holy people. And so let's look through this passage, just walk through this passage, and see how this main point plays out. So the first way that we see in this passage that to be near holy God, we must be a holy people. The first way this is emphasized is when the Lord tells Moses to consecrate the people. This is what we read in verses 9 through 11. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so the people will hear when I speak with you and will always believe you. Moses reported the people's words to the Lord and the Lord told Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. They must wash their clothes and be prepared by the third day. From the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So the Lord's going to come down. He's going to meet with them. His presence is going to be with them. But to be near the Lord, they have to consecrate themselves. Now, when we think of the word holiness, typically what we think of first is this idea of moral purity. And that is certainly part of it, as we're going to see. But 
sort of the, the first meaning of holiness is actually not so much moral purity, but separate, different, unique. To say that the Lord is holy is to say he is holy other. He is high and exalted above us. He's just different. He's separate from us. No one like him. So there's a sense in which for God's people to be near a holy God, we have to be holy. We have to be different, set apart. And that's what it means to consecrate something. Something that is consecrated has been set apart as no longer common. It's special. It's unique. Those of you, maybe you grew up in families that had fine china, or maybe you have that in your home today. With fine china, you only bring that out on a special occasion. You bring that out on maybe holidays or birthdays or whatever the special occasion is. You don't use fine china to eat mac and cheese on Thursday nights. That china has been consecrated. It's been set apart for a not common use. Israel needed to be set apart as different, as unique, as holy. And the Lord tells them, wash your clothes. This is how they are to consecrate themselves. Wash your clothes. When you come into my presence, you're going to do so with clean clothes. Now, understand this wasn't just about doing some laundry. What they were supposed to do on the outside was reflective of what they were to do inside. You understand that clothes can show an identity. They can reflect an identity. So those of you that serve in the military, you wear a uniform. That uniform itself doesn't make you in the military, but that uniform shows that you have been consecrated. You've been set apart from military service. Or you think of a bride on her wedding day. The dress doesn't make her a bride. She is a bride. But the dress shows what she is. It shows her identity. And so Israel washing their clothes, consecrating themselves through washing their clothes, was to point to something deeper, was point to their identity. They were not just to wash their clothes, but they were also to consecrate their hearts. They were to set their hearts apart to be different. People who are holy, people who are consecrated, people who are different, they're different morally. They're different spiritually. And so they were to dedicate themselves over those period of days and preparation to a moral consecration, a spiritual consecration as well. They were to reflect on and, and posture their heart and sort of get their heart firm in the sense of we are going to be obedient to the Lord. And so Israel was to consecrate themselves. They were to set themselves apart to show that they're different. Now, that Israel had to consecrate themselves showed they needed to be consecrated. See, Israel needed to experience that washing, that cleansing, that consecration. They, like all of us, had been dirtied and sullied by sin. And so on the one hand, the Lord had acted to consecrate them. They had been washed clean. And that goes all the way back to the blood of the Passover lamb and passing through the Red Sea. All of that was an act of salvation, an act of forgiveness, an act of washing and consecration. But now here they are at the foot of Mount Sinai about to enter into this covenantal relationship with the Lord and here's what they are supposed to do. They're supposed to remind themselves, listen, this is something that is true about us forever. We have to be a holy people. Forever we recognize we don't just enter the Lord's presence flippantly. We don't just enter into the Lord's presence on our own terms. We, yes, there's a sense where the Lord saved us as we were, messy and broken sinners, but that salvation changes us. It transforms us. 
It allows us to enter into the presence of the Lord, not as we are, but as someone who has been changed and consecrated and set apart. So what's happening here is the Lord is emphasizing. he's, He's bringing this to their attention yet again. I am holy. And to be in my presence means you have to be holy. To be near a holy God, we must be a holy people. The other way the holiness of God is emphasized early in these verses is in the prohibition against touching the mountain. As the Lord tells Moses in verses 12 and 13, put boundaries for the people all around the mountain and say, be careful that you don't go up on the mountain or touch its base. Anyone who touches the mountain must be put to death. No hand may touch him. Instead, he will be stoned or shot with arrows and not live, whether animal or human. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they may go up the mountain. So while Israel's preparing themselves, those days of preparation, they are not to go and touch the mountain. They're not to lose track of their livestock so the mountain can go, or so, so their livestock could go and accidentally touch the mountain. They're to keep distance from this mountain. Why? Well, think of in a palace or in a castle, there's a throne. Can just anybody go up and touch the throne? No, that throne has been consecrated and set apart for who? The king. And only the king may sit on the throne. Only the king may touch it or someone who has been consecrated and authorized to touch it. A commoner does not go up and touch this holy and sacred object because of what it represents, who it represents. The mountain of God is going to become the very throne of God. And so Israel was not to go up and touch that that had been consecrated for the Holy One. They were to keep their distance. They were not to sully and, and, and bring their own sin and stain and their commonness to this mountain because God is that holy. And this mountain had been set apart for the presence of God. And so Israel was to respect the very mountain, the very throne of God, and they weren't to touch it. And, and here's what's, what's crazy. Any animal or person who did touch it, they were to put to de- be put to death. But the way they were to be put to death was from a distance. So, so think of this. H- have you ever like, shook hands with somebody very famous and you're like, oh, I'm not going to wash this hand ever again? Because it's like you've been marked by them, right? Their, their presence has marked your hand. And let's say you shake someone's hand that's famous and then your friend runs up and goes, can I touch the hand of the person who touched the famous person's hand? It's sort of secondhand, I'm, I'm going to be able to touch this person sort of secondhand. Think of this in the negative. To have touched the mountain would have been to have touched something holy. And it was so holy that if someone else touched you, it would have been as if you touched it as well. And so this person who deserved death because they did not respect the holiness and the greatness of God, who dared touch the throne of the king, you don't touch him. You take care of that from a distance. That's how holy this mountain was because that's how holy God is. Now, how does this all sit with you? Pretty intense here. How does this sit with you? The need for consecration and holiness, the prohibition against touching the mountain, death for touching the mountain. Don't even touch the person who touched it. You were to throw throw rocks and shoot arrows at them. I wonder, does this seem a bit harsh and heavy-handed. 
You, you think of the excitement that Israel probably had at the idea of entering into a relationship with God, and God said, I'm going to make you my treasured possession, and all that we saw in the first part of chapter 19, and then now we're getting these prohibitions. Now we're getting, hey, wash yourself, consecrate yourself, don't touch the mountain. Does that seem like a bit of a damper? But doesn't it seem like the Lord sort of throwing a wet blanket on all this excitement about God and his people dwelling together? How do you respond to the intensity of this passage? Does this seem like a picture of a religion based in fear? And in, in your mind, is this everything that is wrong with religion and everything that is wrong with talking about God being holy? See, at, at this point in the story, though we can be excited and though we have this sense that Israel is ready, is ready and willing to obey, it's at this very point that the truth of who God is comes into focus. If you're going to enter into the deepest type of relationship with somebody, it's really important to know who that person is, right? To the fullest. It's important that this person puts all their cards on the table and says, hey, look, this is who I am. And here is what the Lord is doing. But we have, what we have to wrestle with is this. Man, who sets the terms for us coming into the presence of the Lord? Who sets the terms for our relationship with the Lord, us or him? Like, what are the, what are the terms by which we get to know the Lord? Do we say, hey, God, hey, I'm going to know you, and here, here's the way that's going to happen? Or is it the Lord saying, you get to know me, and here's what that means? Who sets the terms of this relationship and then from there, we need to ask ourselves, how holy, how awesome, how majestic, how high and exalted is God to us? Like, how do you see the Lord? How glorious is he in your eyes? How mighty, how exalted, how much greater and above us is he? And on the other side of this, how sinful do we see ourselves? Like, is your sin just a little problem? I just make mistakes once in a while. I'm not, no one's perfect. Or do you see sin as a deadly serious thing that cuts to the core of who we are in and of ourselves? Is our sin a deadly serious matter? Is it that profound? How big of a problem do we see with sin in our world? So here's what we need to come to grips with. Here's what we need to just be honest about. And we all do this. I'll admit at times I do this. Like, we all do this. But when there is a sense that we read this passage and we see the holiness of God and we see these prohibitions, if something in us recoils at that, if something in us is like, I don't like that, that doesn't seem right, then we need to be honest that what we have done is we have pulled God down to our level and we are wanting to set the relationship on our terms. And if we are not careful, we will run further and further down that road until we end up centering self in this relationship rather than the Lord. Where we will start to redefine what it means to be in relationship with the Lord, and we will redefine it along our terms, how we want it to go, based on who we are in our status. And so we begin to pull God down off the mountain, as it were, to bring him down to the foot. We want to turn the volume down on his holiness. We don't want there to be anything that is too high and exalted for us. 
We don't want anything to be too sacred that we can't touch. I mean, how selfish can we get? Where we think we have access and should have a right to everything. But there's nothing above us. Nothing too great. Nope, we get to do what we want on our terms, no matter what. And so we have to be honest about the way that we center self, the way that we can buy into the cultural narrative that we deserve and have a right to everything. And then we've adopted a spirituality that centers us and starts to believe that God's purpose, his existence, is to serve us and make us happy. The org chart gets flipped where it's as if we're on the mountain and God's at the foot. Can you relate to this? Can you relate to how you can do this? How in your own soul you can want to bring God down because you don't like the discomfort of seeing a God that is this holy? So here's the other question then. If if you have given yourself to making God so small, my question for you then is this, is that a God worthy of your worship? Is that a God worthy of your obedience and your reverence and your awe? Because listen, look, if God is that small, like if God is that small to where his whole existence is to make us happy and to serve our needs, look, just go do whatever you want. This is a waste of time. Like honestly, like this is an absolute waste of time. We should stop doing what we're doing right now, pack it up and leave. If God is not the high and exalted one, if he's this, this God that, is just, that serves our needs, we get to set the terms. This is such a waste of time. Go live how you want to live. Go use your time how you want to use your time. Use your money how you want to use your money. Use your sexuality how do you want to use your sexuality. Treat people how you want to be treated. Go get all that you can while you're alive. If God is not this big and glorious, because listen, if he's not this big, if he's not this holy, if he's not this great, then what is there? There is only us. There is only what we can accomplish. There is only what we have the power to control. And if you look around, we're making a pretty big mess of things. There's not a lot of hope in that. Thankfully, that's not the God that we see in the book of Exodus. Thankfully, the God that we see in Scripture, the one true God, he is a God that is high and exalted. He is holy and majestic. When God shows up in Exodus 19, when he descends on the mountain, he rattles creation. There's a disturbance in the force, for those of you Star Wars nerds. (laughs) Like, have you ever watched a a boxing match or maybe WWE? It's okay if you admit you like WWE. It's kind of cool. But if you've ever watched a match, well, what happens when 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 the fighters come in? There's a big spectacle, right? There's loud music and loud noise and there might be fireworks and there might get a hype man who's just, just saying, hey, look, this, this person coming in is great and they're awesome. Pay attention to them. That, that whole idea, all that pomp and circumstance, where does that come from? This comes from a tradition that when a king would enter a city or enter a palace, there'd be just be great fanfare and celebration. There'd be loud trumpets and music and people would be shouting. There'd be a party, be a celebration. The king is here. The king has arrived. Everybody make way. Everybody bow down. Everybody show reverence because somebody great is here. When the Lord shows up, it rattles creation. No man-made spectacle could ever do justice when the Lord shows up. And so creation itself 
becomes the spectacle. The trumpets that are blown, those aren't human trumpets. Those are angelic trumpets. It says the mountain itself shakes violently. It's not just like, oh, that's a little rumble. No, an entire mountain is shaking. And then we, we see thunder and lightning. Like, have you ever been caught in a, in a thunderstorm? Or, or do, you, do you like to, I love watching thunderstorms. Like, sometimes Mindy's like, why are you in the yard when it's hailing and all this stuff? I'm like, because it's so cool to see. A beautiful spectacle, both terrifying and beautiful. Lightning, like the greatest fireworks displays that we could ever conjure up, can't even hold a candle to a lightning display in the sky. Like, that's what I love, like big Nebraska skies when there's a thunderstorm in the distance and you see the lightning. There's nothing else like it. Or when you hear thunder and it rattles you in your bones. Powerful, beautiful, terrifying. This is the spectacle when the Lord shows up. And then it says, there's a cloud that envelops the mountain. Now, a cloud wouldn't have been unusual for Israel. They were being led through the wilderness by a cloud. But the size of the cloud, the intensity of the cloud, has now taken on a bigger proportion. Now it is enveloping an entire mountain. But here's what we need to recognize. This cloud isn't just some normal cloud that God is sort of supernaturally kind of manipulating. The cloud is the very presence of God in tangible form. Let me prove this to you. Exodus 13, 21. This is when Israel was going to was going out of Egypt. This is what Exodus 13, 21 tells us. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead their way. So the Lord, it says the Lord is in the cloud. That's the first sense the, the, the cloud is connected with the Lord. But then at the end of the book of Exodus, when Israel completes the tabernacle, we'll see this probably next fall sometime. Got to wait a year to get there. But this is what we read in Exodus 40, 34, and 35. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, which is another name for the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. What the cloud covered, the glory of the Lord filled. There's a sense of connection here. The cloud is the glory. It's literally a glory cloud. It is the presence of God has descended on this mountain. They can see it. God has come. There he is, descending on the mountain. And then, sort of the coup de grace, God's presence also comes as fire, setting the whole mountain on fire. Verse 18 says, Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace. I mean, can you imagine the sights of a mountain on fire. Like I googled some pictures and I, I found this picture and you can kind of see, I think this is from Northern Ireland, so you can kind of see like the town right here and then there's just like, on the, that's just like a mountain on fire and Google them. There's some really cool pictures when you see mountains on fire, but even this doesn't really do justice to what Israel was seeing. This is just a, a bit of a glimpse, a little, a little, a try to just put an image in our mind of what this looked like, what they were experiencing, a mountain set entirely on fire. And listen, one of, one of the first lessons we learn as children or through experience is you don't play with fire, right? Fire is an incredibly useful tool. We have accomplished so much as civilization because we've been able to harness the power of fire. But we also know fire can be incredibly dangerous, and destructive, 
It can do damage to our bodies. It can do damage to our homes. It can do damage to entire cities. Like Fire is not something that you mess around with. Why Smokey the Bear, one of the greatest public service announcements of all time? Because we know how bad fire is. We know how strong it can be. We have to handle it with the greatest care and respect or we're going to be in trouble. So the, the summer before my senior year of college, my family moved out on an acreage and that fall... I was home one weekend and I was raking some leaves and putting them into our burn pile and I got this really genius idea that I will start these leaves on fire with gas. I was getting a degree in English, not common sense. (laughs) And so I take the gas, pour it on the leaves, and then I do that thing that I I, I saw in the movies. You kind of, you like draw the gas kind of out away. You know, you try to get, let me get some distance. So... Got, got what I thought was safe distance, and I don't know if I had to match one of those lighters, but I go down, I lean down to light it, and it's just this whoosh, and a big fireball, and then nothing. Scared me, scared me, but at the same time I heard this whoosh, I hear this gasp behind me, and I turn around, and a friend of mine who was out there, she's like crying, and she's like, I thought you blew up, because in her line of vision, she saw me, and she saw a fireball. And so she thought, I blew up. Lesson learned. Never use gas to start a leaf fire. Don't play with gas ever, kids. But you don't play around with fire. It makes absolute sense that when the Lord came to his people to give them a visual, a sense of how holy and how great he is, the sense of you need to stay back, keep your distance, watch out, you don't come up to me flippantly, that he would come to them in fire. Now, there is also a sense in which Israel was fascinated by this. You see a mountain on fire, and you're like, the Lord's in that. There's something in us that is drawn to spectacle, drawn to beauty, drawn to things that are terrifying. It's why we watch storms. And so this is why the Lord had to warn Moses, don't tell them not to come up, not come up to see me. I know you're intrigued, I know you're interested, I know you're wowed and awed, but you cannot come up on this mountain because my holiness is too great. If you do, you will be struck dead. So even in the beauty, even in that sense of wanting to be close or wanting to draw near, there was a separation. Close but not too close. And this was a theme, a reoccurring theme for Israel throughout their history. Close but not too close. There were places they could not go. They could not go into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or in the temple. There were things they could not touch like the Ark of the Covenant. Too holy. God is too great. Close, but not too close. So again, let me ask you, how does this all sit with you? When you consider this is not a small God that they are entering into covenant with, the God who's revealed himself is great and glorious. Like, what do you do with such a big God? Are you drawn to such a God? Does your heart long to know such a God? Is there something in you that that wants to be caught up in such beauty and such power and such majesty, such holiness? Do you want God to be that big? Or do you want a God on your terms? Do you want a God brought down to your size who is less holy and powerful and glorious? Look, there's something in us that is certainly, just like Israel, drawn to the holiness and the greatness and things that are big and great. 
We love to be amazed. But man, in our sin and our weakness, we're so terribly prone to pulling God down to our level, to turning down the volume on his holiness. And I think we do this for, for two reasons. I think one, we do it because of pride, because we want to redefine who God is in our own image and on our own terms. But I think there's also the sense in which we can misunderstand grace. We can sentimentalize grace. That is a word. I looked it up. We can sentimentalize grace. And what we end up doing is we end up actually shrinking grace. So we can kind of have this posture of, yeah, in the Old Testament, there was you know, thunder and lightning and fire and holiness and, and God was really big and there was distance and all this. The sense of like, man, that is, a, that is a big, powerful God. But when we get to the New Testament, we got Jesus and we got grace and, and, and he's near to us. And, 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 and so God overlooks sin. It's not as big a deal. And so all of that was kind of Old Testament. It's different now. But friends, when we do that, when we do that, when we try to minimize the holiness of God, the grace of God goes down with it as well. To the extent God is holy is the extent of his graciousness. Grace is so amazing because God is so holy. Like, like think about this for a second. What's a greater act, rescuing someone from a raging river or helping them jump over a puddle? Not a trick question. Rescuing someone from the river, right? Thank you, whoever said that. <laughs> when we think of our need, like our need is great. We really are that sinful. We really are that broken, that dysfunctional. We really are in need of great rescue. We need to be pulled out of a raging river, not helped over a puddle. And listen, minimizing your sin dialing it down, thinking that it is no big deal, trying to reconfigure it with therapeutic language, whatever the culture sort of forms you to do with your sin in a way to minimize it. Listen, I want to tell you, that's not the way because that is not the path of freedom. That's not going to lead you to freedom. It's not going to lead you to actual healing and actual forgiveness and actual renewal. Our need is deep and it is great. And when we minimize that, we minimize the grace of God that has come to us and rescued us. Friends, our need is great. Like we do stand under the judgment of God in and of ourselves. In and of ourselves, because of our sin, we do deserve judgment and death because we have rebelled against God's holiness. We have been prideful and selfish and we have chased after our own desires. We have worshiped other things and lived our life on our terms rather than submitting to a holy God. We've broken his law. Our hearts in and of themselves are bent away from obedience. Judgment is righteous and just. And if you don't believe me, just look at our world. Take an honest assessment of the mess you have made. We deserve judgment. But here, friends, in the midst of being honest about how bad it is, is where the grace of God meets us. In the midst of how bad and how sinful we are, when we were still sinners, when we were that bad, when it was that dark, Christ died for us. It is at that place of our greatest need that the grace of God meets us, that Jesus came and he died for us. He died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He took all the judgment that you and I deserve on himself so that we could be forgiven. And he doesn't just die. On the third day, he rises again in victory over sin and death and evil. And in his resurrection, we are set free from sin. Forgiven and set free. And then get this, 
consecrated and washed. In the book of Titus, chapter 2, listen to what the Apostle Paul says about what Christ has done. He, meaning Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to what? Cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. Cleansing people of his own possession? Hello, Exodus 19. This is what Christ does for us. And then in Titus 3, 4, and 5, if you're not, if you're not convinced, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. In saving us, what has Christ done? He's washed us. He's renewed us. He's consecrated us. He's set us apart to be a holy people who can be near a holy God. And so listen, it does not matter what sin you've committed. You may come here this morning weighed down, feeling just dirty, feeling unclean, feeling that weight of sin in the ways that, that you have damaged yourself and others, I want to tell you, through Christ, all of that can be washed. All of that can be cleaned. Set apart to be holy, to be near God through Jesus Christ. That's the grace of God to you. And the more you see how serious it is, the greater the grace will be to you. The deeper you see your need, the greater you will see what God did to save you. And why does that matter? Because the God that would do that, he is worthy of our worship. That is a God worthy of our worship. That is a God worthy of our hope. If he's a small God, small holiness, it's small salvation. If he's a big God, big holiness, it's a big salvation. Friends, the grace of God has met you in the darkest of places, the dirtiest of places, the messiest of places. That holy God has met you with his grace so you could be a holy people and near a holy God. And here's what's incredible for us in Christ. That prohibition that Israel had, close but not too close, that's been done away with. There is no close but not too close for us. There is only close. There is only nearness. You see, all the, all the rituals and the sacrifices that Israel was given in the law, that was meant to show their need for cleansing, their need to be holy, their need that, that if they wanted to be near God, they had to go through these things, so they got a certain level of access, but it didn't give them full access. Couldn't go into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest, only once a year, couldn't touch the Ark of the Covenant. There was always this close, but not too close. Why? Because all those rituals, all those sacrifices, they were shadows. They were signs. They were never meant to give full access. They were meant to prepare Israel to say, hey, there's still something you need. And they were meant to point to the thing that was going to give that to them, the sacrifice of Christ. Because here's what the book of Hebrews tells us, that when Jesus died, when he sacrificed, he took the blood of his sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, not the temple on earth, but the very Holy of Holies of God, into the very presence of God. And what did that do? It gave us full access. The washing that Christ accomplishes gives us full access. We are now right near, close to God, brought up as a son, as a daughter, into the family, a loving God. We can be near. Why? Because of what Christ has done. Friends, we can be near a holy God. We are made holy because of what Jesus has did. That grace, that grace. And listen, when we come to him, when we come to him, we don't come to him flippantly, 
As Hebrews tells us, we can come in confidence, we can come boldly. That doesn't mean flippantly. That doesn't mean that we, we come as if God is no longer holy. Oh, no, no, I'm not holy anymore, I'm just a dude. No, we still come in humility. But we come in confidence because of what Jesus has done. Because of the grace of God. Because Jesus has so saved us, so transformed us, so made us holy, so given us access, we can come. Our confidence is confidence in what Jesus has done. Not because the volume has been turned down, but because what Jesus has done is so great. We have access to the Father because we've been made holy through Jesus Christ. What grace. What grace we have received. What grace from a holy God. And you want to know how much Jesus has really changed things? So in Exodus 19, when God descends on the mountain, he sets it on fire. What do we read in Acts 2? When the Holy Spirit comes and falls on the church. Sets the church on fire. How do we know? Tongues, little flames of fire. That fire, that presence, that holiness that set a mountain on fire has now set his people on fire because that presence now dwells in you if you are in Christ. That is what Jesus has done. That is the grace in your life. Not turning the volume down on holiness, but turning it up in your life. Giving you access to something that glorious, that pure, that beautiful, that holy. Making you like it so you can be near him. That is the power of God. That is the grace of God in church. Let us not dial down holiness because when we do that, we dial down grace. And the grace of our God is great and majestic. And here's what else. As Hebrews also tells us, what we do with such grace matters. That God showed this much grace that the power of Christ is this grace does not let us off the hook with obedience, actually puts us more on the hook. Listen to what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 12. For you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. So he's talking about Exodus 19 here. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them. We'll see this at the end of Exodus 20, after God had spoken to the people, giving them 10 commandments. We were like, too much, too scary. Talk to Moses and Moses will talk to us. So that's what he's describing here. So those who heard it begged that not another word would be spoken to them for they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. That incredible scene that we see in Exodus 19. The author of Hebrews has said, hey, through Christ, as great and as powerful as that, that's not what you've come to. That's not what you've experienced. We instead have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn, whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So he is talking about what has happened to us spiritually. Being united to Christ, when we gather in worship, it is as we are being lifted up to the very throne room of heaven that we are with the saints in glory, worshiping. We have that kind of access. It's a festive gathering. It's celebratory. We're rejoicing because of the victory that Christ has won. That's what we do on Sunday mornings. That's our spiritual reality. And one day will be our physical reality as well. That's what we have been brought to. That's, that's who we are in Christ. 
So the writer of Hebrews is saying, look at how much greater we have been brought into. Look at this thing, greater than even what happened in Exodus 19. And this is what he writes in verse 25. See to it that you do not reject the one who speaks. For if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. There was a warning that came from God on earth, his voice when he spoke. Now who is speaking? Jesus from heaven. And based on the grace of God, based on what Jesus has accomplished, we have all the more reason to listen. If they had reason, we have all the more reason to listen. Because of how much grace has been lavished, because of the extent God has gone to to save and to rescue and redeem, we have all the more reason to respond. Because listen, what God did was spare no expense. I mean, you think, yes, Jesus became a man. Jesus became a man and he dwelt among us, praise God. But let's never forget who Jesus is. Let's never forget the one who died on a cross for us. In Matthew 17 and Mark 9 and Luke 9, we, we read about the transfiguration where Jesus is on a mountain. He's with Peter and John and then Moses shows up with Elijah and then Jesus is transformed and his clothes become white, whiter than any launderer could ever make them. And his face becomes bright. And so this picture of holiness, brightness, fire on a mountain with Moses. And then a cloud shows up. And from the cloud is a voice, this is my beloved son. Hello, line from Exodus 19, right to Jesus. The glory that Israel experienced on the mountain, Jesus. And then when Jesus ascends into heaven in Acts 1, how does he get there? A cloud, again, not just a normal cloud, kind of just as an elevator, rising him up. No, that is the very glory of God surrounding him, ushering him into the kingdom, ushering him to the throne room, the glory of God surrounding him. And what picture of Jesus do we see in Revelation 1? Hair white as wool, eyes like fire, feet like fired bronze, surrounded by fire and holiness. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. That's the one who died for us. That's the one who gave his life for us. The holy God gave his life for us. If that is who gave his life for us, if that is who rescued and redeemed us, if that is whose grace has been poured out on us, friends, we are all the more on the hook. We have all the more reason, all the more hope, all the more power to walk in obedience. So friends, the holiness of God shows us the grace of God but also shows us the hope that we have through Christ and the power to walk in obedience. And so listen, if you're here this morning and you have never trusted in Christ, if, if you have never turned from your sin and put your hope in God, here's what I wanna say, don't play with fire. Don't play with fire. God is holy and he will judge and he will punish evil. But understand through his grace, you can experience salvation, you can experience forgiveness, you can experience freedom, you can be washed clean and made holy so you can be near a holy God. And for those of you who have put your faith in Christ, listen, the grace of God has been so abundant to you. The spirit of God has been poured out on you. It has set you on fire. It has refined you. It has made you holy so you can be near a holy God. Walk in obedience. 
because of the power of the gospel in your life. You have every reason, every hope, every power. Let us be a people who walk in obedience. As we spend the next several weeks going through the Ten Commandments, as we look at what it means to walk faithfully before the Lord, to be his people through the power of Christ, let's commit our lives and commit our hearts to walking in obedience. Why? Because God is that holy. He is that good. He's that glorious. He's that gracious. We have been made a holy people to be near a holy God. And in that truth, let us be a people who walk in holiness. Amen?